welcome everyone to this edition of Human Wisdom Live. And I'm Manoj Krishna. And today we're going to be talking about the human ego and how it impacts leadership, whether it's managing people or managing yourself. And how can learning about it help us be better leaders or managers or help us better manage ourselves? Uh, my guest today is Dr. Tim Merrick. He's an executive coach in America and in North Carolina. Um, and he and I have been traveling with Human Wisdom for a long time. So, Tim, very welcome. Thank you, Manoj. It's, it's always a pleasure to be here with you. And this, um, this topic is, is dear to my heart, partly because I, I don't know the answers. Mm. <laughs> And I love being in this place with you where we just get to ask questions and wonder and say, oh, it, 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 huh, you know, and I, I like that sort of conversation. And I, I encourage everybody who's either here with us now or going to be listening to this later, because I know you're recording it, that it's not important that you agree with me because, well, that would be my ego telling you, you, you have to believe what I have to say. Uh, and I don't want to be that presumptuous. Um, and Manoj, you, you and I might not even fully agree or, or see eye to eye. We have different perspectives and different interpretations. And I think that's great because it opens up that curiosity, which is just so important. Yes. So, so yeah, absolutely. So the key thing we bring to this conversation is curiosity. What's going indeed. on? Ask the question and then be open. Let your mind be open to what could emerge from asking that question. Let's, so let's begin with the first one. The plan is that Tim and I will speak for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll have everyone join in with their comments and questions. So, so Tim, when we talk about the word ego, what do we mean? And it carries a certain negative connotation, which is unnecessary, in my view. Uh, it does, and I, I think that negative connotation does definitely gets in the way, but I... I'm not a psychologist. I don't have the the basis upon which I would want to clearly define ego. But I think you're right that we all have a slightly different idea of what it means. Um, you know, existentially, Manoj, are you and I separate, or are we part of a greater sphere of sorts? You know, is my kidney and my liver separate entities? Do they each deserve their own ego? Uh, uh, you know, uh, but at some point, I've got this encapsulation of my organs and whatnot, and and I've and it's de and it's declared to be a, a, a whole unit. And yeah. some some concepts have to be in charge of regulating and understanding that. I I, I call that the ego. Yeah. Um, what about you? My view is slightly different. I think it's wherever the word I manifests. So when you say I think, I feel. I, whatever, that's the ego. But what I like, the way I like to explain it is we've got a physical body, which is obvious, but next to us, imagine a psychological body, the eye, which is part of the physical body. But if you take it out, you can look at it separately. And like the physical body has its needs, food, water, etc., this psychological body also has its needs, emotional needs, etc. The other day I was thinking, whereas with food, we have a finite appetite for food. 
the psychological body has an infinite appetite for more and more and more, you know, whether it's pleasure or whatever. And just like the physical body gets hurt, the psychological body also gets hurt and so on. So if we look at it in that way, then we can start looking at it sort of slightly differently and saying, oh, at a distance, trying to make sense of it. I think what you're hitting on is something that we've talked about a lot, which is the ability to be the observer. And I think that's going to show up a lot in today's conversation. If we can see ourselves acting as ourselves, and it's a it's a skill, it's a it's an art of sports that we we develop over a lifetime. But um, can we see ourselves being the ego? Can we see ourselves being the self? And just to observe what's happening. You know, and for that, if we can step outside ourselves a little bit and just observe what's happening from that observation comes order, intelligence, you know, all of that. The other thing but, I think is that maybe the ego operates unconsciously, Tim, most of the time. Right? It's not a like we're in charge of what's happening. Most of the time, it's in charge of our thinking and reactions and so on. Yeah. And that's part of the problem, right? Well, one of the distinctions I would want to kind of bring in here, and it's common in literature to talk about the self with a small s and the self with a large s, mm. you know, the, the higher self of sorts. And then there's the what many people associate with the ego being, you know, the, the small self, the, the, the individual with needs, the individual with the unquenchable thirst, the, uh, the self-serving ego. Yes, yes. But to investigate anything, I think we have to just pause judgment, or suspend judgment, because that blocks understanding. Mm -hmm. You know, if I say you're egotistical, immediately you feel defensive as if I'm attacking you. And so that word has become part of the language. But I think to investigate the ego or the sense of self, perhaps we just suspend judgment. Because would we say it's kind of similar in all human beings? That's a big step as well realizing perhaps it's the same it operates in the same way in all of us i don't want to take anything for granted and i want to say yes but yes <laughs> i do believe that there's absolute similarity i'm sure there's going to be variations on a theme but like you say even about the defensiveness hmm. if we take it back to the model that i just suggested about a, a sort of a, a higher sense which would help me understand you know that you and i Manoj, are actually part of the same Yes. That we're all in this together, right? That sort of larger, largesse requires that that lower self have a certain amount of needs met because otherwise, yes, I'm going to challenge you because you said I was egotistical and now I'm defensive. But that's that smaller ego that needs to be recognized, right? That's going to push back. Yes. But I love your idea that deep down we're the same human being, that we're more connected than we realize. And the more we understand our own ego and ourselves, the easier it is to understand others, have empathy for others, support others, all the things that leaders need. Right? Absolutely. That's, it's, if I show up in a leadership position and I have all the needs of my uh, ego to be important, 
to be liked and loved and to be respected or to think that I know better, that I've got the answers, damn it. Um, what you see is that immediately creates a, uh, a barrier between me and my team, me and my, uh, my superiors, etc. Yes. Okay. So now we've had some, we, we haven't got the definitive answer, but hopefully we've given people some food for thought as to what this word ego could mean. Let's explore some practical examples of how this ego manifests and how it impacts leadership, which is really the heart of this talk. The first one I thought is exploring, how does the ego get in the way of listening? <laughs> well, my need to be right, which I'm going to place in the, as an ego, if I, if I, the ego sees itself as separate and distinct. Hmm. I'm Tim and you're Manoj. Yes. Okay. So, you know, how well I can listen to you is going to depend upon how well, how much I need to be right. Am I just listening to you because I want to talk? Yes. I've got something to say and so hurry up and finish so I can say what I want to say. And yes. you'll see that everywhere. Yeah. Um, then I'm not actually listening. I'm not actually being present with you. Yes. Yes. And the hallmark of great leaders is listening. So the other day I met uh, a lady who worked in government, in the heart of government, and she'd met all these great leaders around the world. And you name it, she was name dropping. So I said, who were the leaders that really struck you and left a mark? And what was the one thing that was common to all of them? And she mentioned three, Obama, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela. And I said, what was it about the three of them that was common? And she said, they really knew how to listen. When you spoke to them, you were the center of their universe. They saw right through you and that moment touched you. So the ability to listen deeply is such a great skill that leaders need to have. Also because the quietest person in the room or the person at the call face, who is a, you think is a non-entity, might have the answers to your problems, which, you know, unless you're listening, you will not pick up. Right? Yeah, I, I remember being on a board of directors and the, when I first joined, I was sort of getting to know the different, you know, characters and hmm. positions and whatnot. And I was sort of shocked that the chair of the board rarely spoke. Hmm. He listened every now and then he would nudge a conversation one way or another. Hmm. oftentimes by asking a question, hmm. but he didn't insert himself into it in a way that was really telling to me. Very interesting. Yes. So this, and of course, if someone is saying something that challenges your thinking, how do you as a leader respond? And if you don't understand your own mind, you're going to respond with resistance. You're going to either stop listening or push back or change the subject but particularly when someone's dissenting, it's perhaps the most important time to really listen, right? That, that's exactly what was bubbling out of me. This, this is such an opportunity. Yes. Oh, there's a difference of opinion? Fantastic. Now we have a place to explore and learn. Yes. Otherwise, we're just a silo of all the same thoughts, you know, and, and you know, the rubber stamping ideas. Yes. Well, uh, building on that theme, 
Let's talk a little bit about unconscious bias, which also comes from, you know, the ego plays a big part in that. We're not aware of all our biases and the conditioning influences that are behind that. Could you speak on that briefly? I I feel uh, like a rank beginner in this. I feel like it's such a huge topic. And I think the world is probably also in that same position. We have a lot of a lot of talk about it. It's it's greatly important, and it it speaks directly to how the ego thinks of itself. Who am I? Mm-hmm. And as we said before in the in the beginning, before we started, Gopalan, you were saying that we are a collection of memories. We are a collection of experiences, right? And from those, we have made some assumptions. Mm-hmm. There's no way for any of us to know all of it. We have to take the data at hand and and try to piece it together. And so our conditioning will influence what narratives we produce. Yes. And we don't realize that we're actually not operating from the truth or from reality. We are operating from our narratives. And that's the place where we have an opportunity to really look at ourselves. And I think you'd find with, say, Obama and Desmond Tutu, right, uh, et cetera, that they've probably done a lot of work to ask themselves, what is my narrative? Yes. And where are my unconscious biases? What is, how have I been conditioned? Because unless you ask that question, all of us have been conditioned unconsciously. We're not aware we've been conditioned. And yet we become attached to that conditioning, my opinions, my beliefs, my narratives, all the things I think are right. And if we just understood that, we'd be so much more open and all our unconscious biases could be parked, you know, and, and we, we could just see things as they are or people as they are. Why do you think we are so attached to our bias, to our narrative, to our way of seeing the world. I think our memories become the me. After all, who is Manoj? Manoj is just memory. I, I never say, look at my thumb. How amazing is that? <laughs> I never identify with my body, like my thumb or my ear, for example. But it's my memories that I identify with. They are what constitutes the me. So just to see that it's a way the mind works. The mind is conditioned easily and it becomes attached to that conditioning. And as a leader, if you wake up to that, not only does it help you understand your prejudices, your and beliefs, but it helps you to understand where everyone else is coming from. Yeah, I remember speaking with an executive a while back who was, and I mentioned it to you yesterday even, that she went into each meeting believing she needed to know the answers to all the questions that were going to come up at that meeting. Of course, it was greatly anxiety producing, Mm. but it seems to me that the ego, the sense of self operates in this fashion where we need to understand the world and it makes sense. We have to survive. Mm. We have to know what to do if that bear shows up around that tree. And so we've developed a sense of what must be and what, how I must react. And I, 
you know, you see it in different amounts and different people, but the need to control one's environment. Yes. So there's a sense that survival depends upon us knowing. Yes. But there's a trick the mind has played with us, you see. That was true for the physical body. For the bear, you know, it was coming from behind the tree. But it's not true of the psychological body, the sense of I, you see. Because there, the mind tends to exaggerate threats, tends to imagine the worst. And there's no kind of inner intelligence operating. So just becoming aware of all that helps put everything in perspective and proportion and so on. So if we, but what will be the, what will be the basis? Well, where, where's the stake on the ground that we say, this is real and this is imagined. This is a, when I step into my boss's office this morning, he's going to drag me over the coals because of last month's process, product report, whatever. I, I feel I need to be prepared for his or her uh, condemnation or, or disappointment in me. How much is, exa is exaggerated? How much is, am I blowing this all up? I'm catastrophizing. And how much of it is, you know, actually I need to be prepared for that meeting. I think there's two things. Being prepared is one thing. And you do the preparation work. I mean, it's like sitting an exam. You work hard, you, you, you prepare. But then you observe the mind catastrophizing. And you ask, is this, is this danger real? How real is this danger? Am I, is my mind imagined? So I think asking the question of ourselves allows rational thought or rash, our intelligence to operate. I want to insert something else here that my likeliness of catastrophizing, mm. I believe is related to my security. Mm. How safe am I? How complete am I? How, you know, existentially, am I okay? Such that whatever happens with my boss, mm. I will be able to handle it. So yes. I don't need necessarily to do all the iterations of what may be. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that I think requires this deeper inner journey where you connect with your own sense of silence and your own sense of peace inside yourself. So you're anchored in that peace. And we perhaps don't have time on this call to go into all that. But it is definitely a thing, as you know, that if you're anchored in your own peace, then, as you said, no matter what happens, you just know, yeah, I'll deal with it. <laughs> so you just don't spend time worrying about what may happen. Of course, you prepare as you know, reasonably, rationally you can. But let's move on, Tim. There's a lot more to cover. What about the ego operating in such a way that we surround ourselves with people who like us, who are like, who, who are similar to us, and we who don't say anything um, to contradict us. Mm. Well, it, you know, if I go back to what I said about safety, mm. if we need to feel safe, then we do not do well with what we consider to be threat, which is simply maybe challenge. 
Like maybe you know, I don't I don't agree with what you just said. Maybe okay. Yeah. Now do I, or you say that to me? Do I feel threatened by it? And I and I need to defend myself, or can I go? Huh? Yeah. So we take someone who's you know uh, either very threatened or very narcissistic, and maybe the two are related. Uh, mm -hmm. Take you know uh, the last president we had in the United States that I need not mention, and um, he did not allow any dissent and he only brought on advisors that agreed with him. Mm. Well, you know, we, we can see the disaster coming in any organization that does not imagine what else could be there. Right. Yes. That silo of thought is quite dangerous for business yes. um, and government. And I, I suspect for our own growth. Yes. But if you're not an, a leader who's aware of your own ego, your first instinctive reaction is to feel threatened by criticism and by dissent, rather than regarding it as an opportunity for learning and different perspectives that might save your bacon one day. <laughs> Imagine Kodak if some, some junior engineer had come along and said, hey guys, this company is going to be extinct. You better, you better change. <laughs> yeah. Um like almost happened with Netflix, right? They, they almost tanked at some point for that reason. Um, so what is it that allows us to hold disparate ideas and possibilities at once? Yes. I think there's this, there's a, a level of comfort with uncertainty. Yes. Yes. So important. And also a level of comfort with who you are. Mm -hmm. Which actually takes me to my next question, because if you have a need for external approval, which is constantly operating in the background, if you're not aware of it, you have a constant need for others to like you, then how could that play out in a leadership position, Tim? Well, it gets back to this idea of the small ego. If you just you, let me use that model for a moment. Um, you had mentioned that we have a psychological body with needs. Mm. Our physical body needs sleep and rest. It needs, you know, drinking water. It needs, etc. The psychological body also needs uh, affection, uh, understanding. We need to be how many I work with executives every day. And so many times they'll say, you know, when it gets right down to it, I need to be seen. I have a need to be understood. Mm. I have a need to be valued. Mm. If we don't have those, mm. right, what's going to happen? How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to criticism? How are you going to, how, what will you do in order to get those needs met? Yes. I'm going to tell the boss what he wants to hear. And I, and I hear that every day. The boss is upset. I need you to get this done. And the executive says in their own mind, I know that's impossible. Hmm. But what do they say to their boss? Yes, I will get that done. Hmm. Because they can't afford the challenge. They can't afford the conflict. They need to be liked. They need to be respected as someone who can get it done. Yet in the mind, they know there's just no darn way that's going to get done. Yes. Also, I think we mentioned, uh, we spoke briefly yesterday about this, and we said it stops us being more demanding of others or challenging others, because, again, we want them to like us if I'm the big chief. 
and I don't want them not to like me. You know, we build, so I can't say, hey, Tim, you really screwed up here. You know, you better pull your socks up or whatever it might be, because this need to be liked, again, is operating in the background. So it operates at so many different levels. Well, and you'll see of all the, of all the requests that come to me for coaching from this group of leaders is the capacity to coach up, to speak, speak truth to power, to, to be able to say what is, even though it may create conflict. Yes. I think and that opens the door perhaps to, it's an, again, a separate discussion uh, about communication, but it's how things are said rather than what's said. That's sometimes more important. Like you can speak the truth, but again, it's well, the energy behind it that really determines how it's going to be received by, by others. Okay. What about leaders who wear a mask, who pretend to be somebody they're not? Because they have, a, they have this, as you say, the need to control what other people think of them. That's, our, again, our ego operating in the background. I need you, I need to control what you think of me. So I, I keep getting back to the unmet needs, you know, and I, and I, and it's, if we're going to be effective in the world with ourselves, as well as teams, as well as a company, as well as our family, our friends, our lovers, we have to take care of ourselves first. Mm -hmm. um, me putting on a mask is me trying to fit in. Now, I, I understand that one real well. As, as a neurodivergent person in this world, I was trained at birth to wear a mask to fit in because I don't actually fit in. <laughs> I, I, mean, I fit in well with my other neurodivergent people. But, I, you know, so, the, so we learn how to, to be like other people such that we can get by. And, you know, we have ideas of what leadership might mean. Leadership, I should be strong. I should be forceful. So I go out and I put on that mask. And is that effective? Maybe once in a while. But we get back to what we said yesterday. These are automatics. Many yeah. times that mask is an automatic. And it's it has been proven useful once or twice in our lives. And we've now taken it on and we continue that. But also to realize the downside of that mask, because you're not being authentic. So behind the mask, you're always suffering because you're worried people are going to see through that mask, whether you're in you know, the imposter syndrome, whatever. It's okay to walk into a meeting and say, I don't know the answer to this one. You know, I'll find out. See, it's so refreshing, uh, even for the big boss to hear, okay, you don't know the answer, that's fine. I'll find out or you know, whatever it might be. But also people have an inner sense whether you're being authentic. They connect with you so much better if you are being who you are. It's back to what you said about the energy behind a conversation. It's what I refer to as just your being. When you can understand yourself, when you can understand your ego, when you can understand your own needs, your own propensities, when you can understand your automatic masks and automatic ways of 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 being hmm. you can start to choose to peel those layers off and show up authentically as yourself and uh, i agree with you that is it's compelling i might not have the right answers i might not know the right things to say 
I can apologize if necessary, but I'm here with you, listening to you and, and relating to you, and that is felt. That's what people know, and that's terribly important in leadership. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Okay, how does our fear, see this psychological entity, which is the ego, is afraid constantly of being hurt. Mm -hmm. How does our fear shape our role as leaders? What is, how does it manifest? If we don't understand this fear, what are the things that can go wrong? I see people try to separate themselves from it. We assume fear bad, mm. right? Fear is a natural state, as you said. Mm. It is that survival mechanism within the brain that says, hey, something could happen, look out, mm. right? So it's, it can be our friend. Fear is just a natural state. And when we recognize it, we can make space for it. It can actually be there to warn us, hey, uh, it might not be the best uh, to walk down that dark alley. Yes. You want to stay on the, on the, on the lit street, uh, even if it takes longer. Um, so I see people pushing, say, their fear away. Mm. And that has its own impact. Mm. Right? So I think uh, making peace with who we are, again, making peace with our ego and not trying to say our ego, we must jettison this thing and somehow become this non-entity out here. Um, and that gets to a, a place of acceptance of our humanity. Yes. I think our fear can also make us not take any risks. So if I'm a middle manager, I've got a decision to make. I'm afraid how this will make me look to others. I know it's good for the company, but there's a risk in that in terms of you know, what people will think of me. Or I can take the safe option and do nothing or very little. And I know that's no, there's no controversy there, et cetera. So yeah. our fear can stop us making the tough decisions, taking risks. We're worried about making a mistake so we don't really do anything. And that really drains the productivity out of organizations. 100%. And I see a lot of that from upper level leadership down to the lower levels. You know, they say, I want, and I'm looking for that promotion. And many times uh, the, the folks above will say, well, I need you to show up a lot more boldly. I need you to be willing to make demands. Uh, I need you to be willing to, you know, push back when it's not appropriate. I need you to be bold. I need you to, um, you know, to change the languages, uh, to, to get rid of the fear <laughs> to, or to operate in spite of the fear. Yes. A great story went, uh, went on a, one of these uh, ropes courses, you know, uh, character building, you know, et cetera, okay. team building. And a woman was uh, climbing up a pole. She was terrified of heights. And she got about halfway up, the, maybe 15 feet up on this pole. And she just froze. I mean, she was just clinging to it for dear life. And she says, I can't, I can't. And the leader was saying, uh, what's going on up there? She says, I'm afraid. She says, I get it. We're all afraid. I understand. Now, the question I have for you is not whether or not you can climb to the top of the pole or whether you think you can let go of your fear, but can you move your right foot six inches up? Because mm. there's another foothold right there. Mm. You know, can you be afraid and take the next logical action? Yes. Right. So it's not about getting rid of our fear. 
it's understanding it, I think, and find and as you say, putting it in its right place. The dark alley, yes, maybe um, making the right choices, being afraid of them, you know, maybe that's not the right place. But fear also leads into confidence, right? And because you, we were discussing how many leaders say their biggest problem is a lack of confidence. And one perspective or one tip to overcome fear is to be okay with whatever happens. As you said, I'm okay right now. No matter what happens, I will still be okay. Yeah. And that confidence. So as long as you, if you're trying to control the outcome in the future, that's when fear, fear occurs and your lack of confidence, et cetera. But the moment you accept any possible outcome, your boss is mm -hmm. going to get mad. Fine, I'll deal with it. You know, I might lose my job. Fine, I'll deal with it. I'll still be okay. And then that's where confidence comes from. What's your experience? Well, part of me wants to push back because I'm hearing the voices of other people who are not as privileged as I am, who feel like that's fine for you to say you're going to be okay no matter what. But I, I can't afford to lose this job. I've got three children at home. I've, you know, whatever. And so they're, they've put themselves in a context such that they can't afford to take a risk. Hmm. When you pull back on that, what you realize though, is that if you don't take a risk, you're probably endangering your job more than, hmm. <laughs> so those are the people holding on to the pull, right? Yes. We want them to have the confidence to move on, but they say, I don't have confidence. I can't. So I try to separate that out. I try to say it's not, you don't wait until you're confident to take action. It's actually learning to take action in spite of the fear that builds your confidence. Yeah. The other thing, the trick the mind plays on us is we think our fear comes from the outside. From the dark alley, from the boss, from the threat of the job, etc. But actually, it's a reaction from our thinking to either an event or an imaginary thought. Oh, I might lose my job, and then we're afraid. So the answer lies inside us as well, and that's a separate discussion. You know how to explore and understand fear. But I'd like to end with perhaps the biggest question, which is: What are the ways in which our self-interest, which is part of the ego, manifests? And what are the different ways um, the ego manifests as if you're in a leadership position? And, and sometimes it doesn't serve you or the organization you're part of, right? It's a funny thing. We talked before about having certain needs met. Mm. And we also talked about the ability to stand apart mm. and to see ourselves, to see our ego in action. Mm. And it occurs to me that when you don't have your needs met and you don't have the capacity to see yourself, hmm. it opens the door to a lot of unseemly behavior to get your needs met uh, through less than um, appropriate ways. We talked about, you know, corruption using, you know, lying to get what you need, you, you know, to manipulate others. And these power. are things that we see with our leaders all the time. All the time. Power. I mean, yeah. the, and you see, as we talked about, the psychological body, its needs are endless. So when it comes to corruption, the mind can justify anything. 
like taking a bribe, you know, do you know that 30% of all global government money is lost to corruption, the World Bank? And at every occasion, somebody says, yeah, it's okay to steal because somebody else is stealing. Or, But it's not like a thousand pounds is enough. If it's a million, it's still not enough. 10 million is still, and so on. Do you see what I mean? Because the mind continues to justify all of that. Uh, and this is one of the big reasons for corruption in government organizations everywhere, which is our hidden self-interest operating in the background. And if you don't wake up to it, it is going to control your behavior. Well, and then your mind will be brought into the job of rationalization and, um, you know, uh, negation of, of, of your acts. So that, you know, that is when I talk about, you know, uh, meeting one's needs, psychological needs first, that is that condition on steroids. And I think uh, mixed with a certain level of narcissism or a certain level of, um, you talk about conditioning. Some people are conditioned to believe that I, there's no one there to help me. I have to help myself. Yes. Okay. But it's also this whole business of being important. I'll share a little story, which is amusing, but um, it's in a part of the world where somebody I know well was a leader of a big organization. And he had three people working under him of equal rank, looking after different bits of the organization. And they all were given a car, the same car. And their bickering was about the age of the car, how somebody was more important because they'd been given a car that was, you know, more recent, uh, whatever, newer than the other ones. And these were really senior executives. But because you have no understanding of your own ego, your mind automatically is comparing with others, seeking importance, all of those things. And you can see it completely it doesn't work for the organization or for you. It makes you look really silly in the eyes of everybody else, right? I think this idea of comparison is really important. When we start comparing ourselves to others, that's a part of our ego that's not helping us. You know, um, I, it is my firm belief that each and every individual on earth brings a special gift mm. or many that we would not exist. Nature is, is conservative and it does not, uh, allow a great deal of redundancy. If you're not important, you phase out. And I believe that each of us has an important gift. And if I try to compare myself to you, Manoj, you know, I'm either going to come up short or I'm going to feel uh, superior. And those are not realistic or important or helpful comparisons. But it's automatic, as you said, Tim. It's the comparison process and the need to feel important. They're all automatic. And again, come from the same ego. So if you see them clearly, then you can act with wisdom or intelligence. But if you don't see them, they are going to run your life. Well, and maybe we get back to where we started here, which is to say how important it is to be able to step back and see yourself, to be able to have that level of uh, introspection such that you understand the working 
or at least observe the working of your own mind and own ego. Yes. And I, if I am not mistaken, that's kind of what human wisdom is all about. Yes. <laughs> the human wisdom project. Yes, it's all about. So I'll leave that one up. for you. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Tim. So I'm just going to share my screen and show you the human wisdom app and all the resource, all the things we've talked about in this discussion are, meant, are explored in much more detail here. So for example, there's a section called Wisdom for the Workplace. And there are modules there on work, leadership, communication, success and failure, relationships, bullying, how to make good decisions, deal with criticism, and exploring our opinions and beliefs. In addition, there are guided questions, short videos, podcasts, um, guided meditations, and so on. But the app goes deeper because it explores how we can begin our journey of learning about ourselves, a section called Understand Yourself, and then understanding how your mind works, which is really what we're talking about, isn't it, Tim, is the manifestation of the ego. But it's broken down into 10 different sections, all about self-interest or the need for approval or uh, our emotional needs, which we've talked about a lot. Okay. And of course, there are modules on managing our emotions, fear and anger. We haven't talked about anger, but it's, there's a lot, there's a big module on anger here. What are you and talking about? Gonna, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, and just how you can apply this to um, deal with every aspect of life. So that's a very quick tour, but it's humanwisdom.me or download the Human Wisdom app. It's free to download and browse. Sorry, Tim, go ahead. No, I was just playing with you. Uh, I like my, my wife and I play this game all the time where someone says something and then you you act in accordance to what it was that you said. So you said there's no anger here. And so I wanted to respond with anger. Uh, it's just a game. <laughs> oh, I'm just having fun. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, okay. Now, uh, I'd love to hear what our, all our visitors and guests from around the world have to say. Uh, so Gopalan, uh, well, You've been in the Singapore uh, airport administration for a long time. And what lessons did you learn about the ego and leadership? Uh, thank you, Manoj. You know, uh, the, it's such a huge topic. Yes. And uh, we'll never get over it, right? Um, and, and we spoke about observing, observing, you know, observing mm. yourself, the ego, and what's relationship with self-esteem? Yes. Is self-esteem ego? Yes. Is pride, yeah. is pride ego? Mm. They say take pride in your job. Is that ego? Mm. You know? Mm. So everything about us has a relationship with us. Mm. And I find that um, insightful. Um, and and um, I think the, the as, as uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti has, has said, we spoke of ob about observation. The observer is the observed, right? Uh, and, and, and the ability to observe, that means without the need to act. Mm -hmm. The so the ability to observe without evaluating mm. because judgment is at play mm. right is the highest form of intelligence which mm. is the human intelligence yes yes so i hear just being able to be with 
to, to recognize and to be with. And that requires a certain level of, I'm okay. <laughs> talked about. But yeah. that's something beautiful. really beautiful, Gopalan, which is, and thank you for bringing that up, that when we're observing the ego, we have so many reactions to what we're seeing. It's good, it's bad, it's right, it's wrong. But to be able to observe it as it's operating without it evaluating or in act, interacting, that brings its own transformation. Comparing. Yeah, comparing. And, 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 you know, the basis of all that is whether you like it or not, we've got 8 billion people in this world and they all have their own unique individual um, mental model, hmm. which is uh, conditioned by uh, what have, they have been through in life, Correct. the image they have created out of those experiences, and which is all in the past. Yes, yes. Um, Dominic, You've been a head teacher and a leader in education for many, many years. What lessons have you learned that you could share with us? Um, rather a lot, I think. But um, it's fascinating. it is a fascinating discussion, actually. The thing that was coming up for me was, was around um, belief and the, the definition of leadership and what you believe leadership is. Mm. will have a, a, a huge impact on how you behave. Mm. So if you have been conditioned um, to believe that a leader should be, I don't know, authoritarian, mm. um, then you will act from that belief. Mm. Um, one of the things for me was always around servant leadership. So kind of trying to turn, you know, you, you think you're at the top of the pyramid when you're a leader, but actually if you turn that upside down, it's about how do you serve um, everyone from, from that perspective. Well, if you have that belief, then actually that impacts how you behave as a leader. If you come from service or you come from a, the authoritarian position, it's going to, it's, but I think the important thing here, and this, this is exactly what the Human Wisdom Project is about, is actually just the investigation of hmm. where do my beliefs come from and how is that forming my ego, mm. forming how I behave, that in itself, if you can just shed a light on that and be curious to that, then at least you can say, actually, what what do I believe a leader is? And is that true? Mm. Yes. I love that, Dominic. And I, I, I want to point that when we have those sorts of ideas, like a, a, this is a, like a, what I call a truthism, you know, about mm -hmm. this is what leadership is. Mm -hmm. Then we act from that, and it it becomes an automatic way of our behavior. We don't mm -hmm. recognize it; it's unconscious. Yeah. And what I work with so with so many executives is like, okay, so that's one methodology, and that may be appropriate in certain circumstances. But let's look at being present to what other tools you can have in your tool chest. And where they're appropriate, and that's going to require us to stop, take note, and what's what's important right now. That's going to represence us. But I love what you also said that when it gets right down to it, is can we see it? Yes. Yes. Maybe we'd be aware of it. You know, Dominic, I I went to an organization once, and basically the leader of that organization ruled with fear because that was his conditioning. Right? He'd been he'd grown up. In whether it was through his parenting or whatever it was, 
where fear was used to control his behavior. And so he was using fear to control. And you could see it was a school. The children were scared of him. And in that environment, what kind of learning was going on? But there was no insight, see what I mean, into that. And of course, leaders of bigger organizations do the same thing. And they think that's the most effective. And again, it's just the ability to question that narrative in ourselves that awakens intelligence. Um, Can I also turn that on its head? It's for us as leaders to also deal with those people who are trying to lead us, you know, and to be able to call that out. If that's if that's the methodology someone else is using, yes, to be able to be present with that, because we've all everyone in, on this page, if you're if you're not self-employed, you've worked with a boss who has been one of those who's been an authoritarian, who's moved, who's pushed and says my way or the highway or who has tried to lead, lead with fear. And how did we deal with that? Did we yes. just quit? Yes. How do we respond to somebody who's trying to rule us with fear? It's a challenging question. Do you call I it? I saw out? Jenny. Yeah. I saw Jenny nodding there like she had something to say. Go on, Jenny. <laughs> no, I was nodding because I, I've, I've had one of those, and I did what you said. Yeah. I, I, th I think this has been an amazing, amazing discussion. I'm really looking forward to listening to it again because there's so much in here to take in but there was one thing really early on when we're talking about leaders <clears throat> and I immediately thought of Simon Sinek mm. don't know if any of you are familiar with him and he said that I think it was in his book why leaders eat eat last that the the guy the good leader when sitting around a table asking for opinions and ideas and all the rest of it the good leader shuts up he doesn't say anything. He goes around the table and asks everyone for theirs because if he says his first, everyone else is going to think, oh, mine's not as good as that. Whereas or I better if follow up, the boss, <laughs> you know. Yes, yes. Well, what, yeah, whatever, you know. But if he, if the leader is quiet, lets everyone else have their ideas, then no one in the room is frightened that theirs doesn't live up to his and they're all more free to put it forward. Yes. Um, yes. Which I think is great, but that's about. I mean, that's, the that's great. And so, sorry, Tim, go ahead. Oh no, I was just the the thing that you're saying is literally as leaders, we also have the responsibility to draw out from our teams and to build up our team, right? And if we're always telling them what to do, they never learn to make those decisions, etc. Right. So it's really. Um, I agree uh, with with um, what we've said before that the we need to have a healthy uh, ego. We can't give it up completely, yes. but we can't let our own ego strength dominate our teams. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Gopalan. Yeah, as the discussion progressed, uh, the thought that came to my mind was our attachments, right? Our attachment to our identity. Mm -hmm. Because with the attachment to identity, then comes the importance and the ego and everything else. 
Yeah. What if you are stripped of everything? What is left of you? Then what? Who are you? Then who are you? What is? Uh, what does it mean now? It, that's why I think when when you retire from forty years of uh, of of uh, uh, from a career, and and um, you are no more attached to that position, you don't have the authority, you don't have any influence, and and you ask yourself, okay, so who am I after all these years? Yes. Well, it's a good right. question to have asked at the beginning of your career, not at the end of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, exactly. So. But a, a thought that came to me was: if you're a leader who doesn't recognize that you're always hungry for your meeting your getting your psychological needs met, to be important, powerful, all of that stuff, then you can't look after the others in your team and organization because they're looking for their needs to be met. So if you don't recognize that, and so you don't say the nice things, you don't pat people on the back, you know, whatever it is that people need, because the more you understand your own emotional needs and take care of them for yourself, the more you can respond to the emotional needs of everyone in your team. Because if you could do that, then they will cross that river for you. You could be talking about uh, relationship coaching at this point. You know, it's the same thing, right? Yeah. We need to. We so many of us grew up with a conditioning that our needs will be met by others. Yes. My wife will tell me how wonderful I am. My boss will say, "Attaboy," right? And so now we're always seeking our validation uh, externally. Yes. Yes. And I think that is the single biggest cause of human suffering in organizations, you know, the need for someone else to like me or tell me I'm good or important before I like myself. You see. So what came for me, what resonated was the need or the importance of supporting others. And as you said, Tim, if you're constantly looking for your own needs to be met, you really are so self-absorbed, your own anxiety and fear and all of that you can't look after people around you right I, and I, this is a non sequitur but i need to put it in that i want to call myself out and perhaps call out others in the room uh, i think the preponderance of times we've talked about leaders we've used the male pronoun and i think it's time that we give that one up um and i call myself out on that as well because uh, the the most brilliant minds that we have uh, is are not based on gender. And you know, when we talk about being ready for a diversity of thought, then hello, welcome to the female leaders of this world. Yes, thank you for highlighting that. Is there anyone else who would like to comment? Um, the floor is yours. Um, okay. Well, thank you everyone uh, for all your contributions today. And thank you to Tim Merrick and uh, our contributors from around the world. Such a stimulating discussion. And if we could get this into the hands of leaders mm -hmm. around the world, what a difference it could make. Um, so thank you and have a really good weekend. This podcast came to you from the Human Wisdom Project. To find out more, please download the Human Wisdom app or visit our website, humanwisdom.me. If you like the podcast, please share it with others. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.